Our topic for tonight, what will heaven be like? When Marco Polo returned to his hometown of Venice, Italy, after spending many years of traveling in the Orient, his relatives thought that his long years of travel had driven him insane. He had such incredible stories to tell. Marco had traveled all through the Far East. He'd been over to India. He'd been to China. And when he returned to his hometown of Venice, Italy in 1295, he reported visiting a city that was full of silver and gold. He told of black rocks that would burn, but nobody back then in Venice, Italy had ever heard of coal. He told of a cloth that refused to catch fire even when thrown into the flames, but nobody back in 1295 in Venice, Italy had ever heard of asbestos. He told of serpents ten paces long and with jaws big enough to swallow a man. He told of these nuts as big as a man's head and white as milk inside. He told of a substance that would come spreading up out of the ground that would actually set lamps alight. But no, nobody back then in Venice, Italy had ever heard of crocodiles or coconuts or crude oil. They thought he was telling fables. Years later, when Marco lay on his deathbed, a devout man came and urged Marco to recant all the fables he had told. Recant, said Marco? Never. It's all true. I haven't told half of what I saw. It seems, friends, that the Bible writers describing heaven echo the words of Marco Polo. It's all true every bit, and we haven't told half of what we saw. But is it really all true? Does heaven exist? Is there a place out there in the universe somewhere called heaven? A place of peace? A place of harmony? A place where there is no death, no sorrow, no tears, no fear? Or is heaven just another fantasy, another fairy tale like all the other fairy tales we've been told? And if it's a real place, can we ever hope to go there and live there in that perfect world? These and many other questions we're going to answer in our study this evening. Let's begin with this text, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. We're going to look at a lot of text tonight, so I hope you'll take notes, mark down these references, or look them up with me in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, our first text this evening. The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Your wildest imagination cannot begin to grasp the beauty, the glory, the rapture, the reality of heaven. Heaven is a real place for real people. All down through the ages, patriarchs and prophets have longed for heaven. They considered themselves pilgrims and strangers in this world. We sing the song, I'm just a passing through, I'm a pilgrim here. Abraham considered himself a pilgrim. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 10, mark it down. Hebrews 11, verse 10. For he, Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Is there such a city? A city designed and built by God himself? Let's get our answer from Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 3, In my Father's house are many mansions. Where's the Father's house? That's heaven. Let's go to John 14 and read this passage, this promise. This is a promise for each of us tonight. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Many of you probably could quote this. Well, we're going to read it here from John 14. Verses 1 through 3. Are you there? John 14, if you are, say amen. amen. All right. 
Reading from the, well, if you have the seminar Bible anyway, it's, we're reading from the King James. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many what? Many mansions. That's if you're reading the King James. Now, you poor New International people, all you get in heaven is a room. That's all your New International Bible is going to give you, just a room. That's all you get. <laughs> we King James people, we get mansions in glory. You can see why I like the King James. <laughs> I remember I, I heard this story of this fellow. He was reading from a preacher. He was reading from one of these newer translations of the Bible. He was reading from John 14. And his particular version said, In my Father's house are many dwellings. And this was, there was this dear saint in the back. She interrupted the sermon. She said, Wait, preacher, my Bible doesn't say dwellings. My Bible says mansion. Don't you take my mansion away from me. Well, I felt like saying amen to that story. I thought, my wife and I, we've, we've stayed in many dwellings, for better or for worse. <laughs> I'm looking forward to a mansion in glory. And my King James Bible gives that. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a cloud for you. Uh, oh, uh, does it say cloud? No, not a cloud. I go to prepare a what? A place for you. And if I go and prepare a, a what? A place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Heaven is a real what? It's a real place. St. Louis is a place. How many of you have been there? Of course. Uh, New York is a place. How many of you have been there? Oh, you travel a lot. Moscow is the place. Now I'm talking about Moscow, Idaho. Moscow, Russia is the place. How many of you have been there? Well, how do you know it's a real place? You haven't been there. You say, well, Pastor, I've seen pictures of it. I believe that's really Moscow. It takes faith these days, you know. <laughs> Mark this. Heaven is just as real as St. Louis or New York or Moscow or any place. Heaven is a real place for real people. We have hope beyond this world because the place that we're going to is not a fairy tale, not a fantasy. It's a real place. And those who go there are going to be real people. John exiled on the lonely Isle of Patmos off the southern coast of Turkey. He was given a vision of that real place, heaven. He describes it in Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 2, he describes this as the holy city, New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, put a marker here in Revelation 21. We're going to come back to this place many times tonight. Revelation 21, we're going to read verse 2. Revelation 21, verse 2 says... And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Where's it come down to? We'll answer that in a moment. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here, John, trying to describe the beauty of the place, he says, well, it's sort of like a bride dressed up for her husband. Trying to give some human analogy of the beauty and the happiness of the place. I don't suppose there's any better picture of a of beauty and happiness, than a bride dressed up for her husband. I still remember when my pretty bride came down the aisle in the chapel near to Loveland, Colorado. We got married near to Loveland, Colorado. It has nothing to do with why we still are in love today, but we got married near Loveland, in the chapel just outside of Loveland. But here John, trying to, to describe how beautiful this place is, how happy it is, he says, well, it's sort of like a bride dressed up for her husband. 
What else is the city like? Let's drop down to verse 14. Revelation 21 verse 14 says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Go down to verse 19. It says, And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. And you can read on there the list of the twelve stones. Apparently the wall of the city is built on twelve enormous gems. Can you imagine what that must look like as the glory of God reflects off these 12 enormous jewels? Probably makes the whole city look like it's clothed in a beautiful rainbow, a kaleidoscope of color and beauty. What a picture. Well, how big is this city, the New Jerusalem? Let's go to verse 16 for the answer. Revelation 21 verse 16 says, And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Twelve thousand furlongs. How big is that? Well, that's about the size of the state of Colorado. How's that for a city? You thought that St. Louis or Kansas City was big. That's just, they're just little holes in the wall compared to this city. A city as big as the state of Colorado. A megalopolis. There is such a word. <laughs> and if there was ever a megalopolis, it's the New Jerusalem. You say, well, Pastor, I don't live in Colorado. I'm living over here in Missouri. Well, if we were to put the New Jerusalem in the area of Missouri, Missouri, is that how you say it? <laughs> It would take in the entire state of Missouri, along with a, a good third of Illinois and a big chunk of Kansas. And we Clinton saints fit right there in the New Jerusalem. <laughs> well, I don't know where we're going to be, but I'm just kind of putting things in perspective. Someone once mentioned that you could put 450 New York cities inside the walls of the New Jerusalem. Plenty good room in my father's house for all who want to go. And most people aren't going to want to go anyway. At least they're not willing to go on God's terms, which are recorded in this book. They want to make their own terms. So there won't be a problem with overcrowding there. You want to go? There's plenty of room. You won't have to feel like you're bumping into everything. There'll be plenty of room. And not only that, the city has golden streets and pearly gates. Let's read that from verse 21. Revelation 21, 21 says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were what? Transparent glass. We think that gold is valuable here. We're going to walk on it up there. And not just any type of gold, this is transparent gold. By the way, did you know that we now have the capacity to refine gold to the state of transparency, even here in this sin-cursed world? And there the streets are going to be paved with transparent gold. If such a city were here on earth today, what would you do? Come on now. If such a city that we're describing were on this earth today, what would you do? Move there, right? I'd come with you. And we wouldn't need you all to help us either. We could leave all the baggage behind. Well, the good news is that city is going to be here one day. John said in Revelation 21, verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Where does it come down to? It comes down to this earth. Let's read verse 3. And we'll establish that a little farther. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God is going to move the capital city of the universe down here to planet Earth. Can you understand that kind of love? This one world that rebelled against God, the planet in rebellion, this little world where the devil controlled and ruled for all these centuries, this little world where Jesus came and suffered and bled and died, this world will one day be exalted to be the nerve center of the universe. God is going to move the capital city of the universe down here to planet Earth. Can you understand that kind of amazing love? Jesus himself said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. You say, well, pastor, I was hoping to get off this world. I don't want to stay here. Well, certainly the world as it is now would not be much of an inheritance. God's going to have to do some changing, some cleanup, some remodeling, if you please. Let's go to 2 Peter 3, verse 10, and notice what God does to this world. That's just back a few pages from where you were in Revelation. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. 10. Did I say 12? 2 Peter 3, verse 10. God is going to cleanse this world, the world as we know it. 2 Peter 3, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be what? Shall be burned up. So God is going to purify this world of every trace of sin and sinners. And then notice verse 13, 2 Peter 3 verse 13 says, Nevertheless we, according to his promise, what promise? The meek shall inherit the earth. Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Don't you like things that are new? I mean the smell of a new car. Hmm. You say, Pastor, I couldn't afford one. Well, I couldn't either. <laughs> how about a new pair of shoes? You say, well, that would hurt my feet. Uh, how about a new suit or a new dress or a new computer? Wouldn't that be great? We like things that are new. They look so clean. They smell so fresh. And someday this earth is going to be made new and it's always going to feel new. And we're going to get to live in this new earth for all eternity. It'll always feel new. It'll always look new and never get marred or dirty or polluted. You say, Pastor, I understand why God needs to make a new earth. But what does it mean when it says a new heavens? What's a new heavens mean? You may realize that in the Bible there are actually three types of heavens. There's the atmospheric heavens, probably including the solar system, our solar system. And then there's the starry heavens, the cosmos, the universe, second heavens. And then there's the third heavens, the heaven of heavens, God's home. Which of those three heavens does God need to make over new? The atmospheric heavens. We've taken sin off the planet, did you know that? We got all these satellites up there beaming down their pornographic filth. We have the space, International Space Station up there orbiting the Earth. We've been to the moon left our stuff on the moon. We've been to Mars. We had a little robot crawling around up on Mars. We crashed one on the backside of Mars. In fact, I understand recently they crashed something back, in the, back into some place on the moon. By the way, did you know that they are tracking some 28,000 objects orbiting planet Earth? Take a look at that. That's what we kind of look like. All the stuff. And then it was earlier this year when two satellites collided. You heard about that, right? 
10,000 more pieces of space junk added to the 28,000 that's already up there. Talk about a cloud of debris. God's going to have a lot of cleanup to do. We're going to get to breathe new air when God makes the new earth. Not going to breathe polluted atmosphere. And by the way, they got a probe that's headed out toward the outer recesses of our solar system. Can you imagine if we're out traveling sometime in the universe and we've been, after sin has been eradicated, and we come back to our home, this earth, and as we enter the solar system, we bump into this probe and we think, well, what happened? I guess God must have missed something when he cleaned things up, you suppose? Not at all. God is going to have to clean up the whole solar system. You say, Pastor, I'm confused. Are we going to live in heaven or are we going to live on the new earth? And the answer is yes. <laughs> we're actually going to spend a thousand years in heaven and then we're going to come back to this earth as it will be made new. Let's review what happens at the second coming. Christ returns, of course. The righteous dead, the resurrected, the righteous that are living, they're changed in an instant. All the righteous are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, taken up to where? To those mansions that Christ has prepared for us. The wicked that are dead, they remain dead. And the wicked that are living when Christ comes back, they are slain. During the thousand years, the earth is desolate. The righteous are all in heaven. Where's the devil during that time? He's stuck here, bound here in this desolate earth. All the mess that he's created. And then at the end of the thousand years, the holy city descends. Where does it descend to? Zechariah 14, verse 4. If you want a cross-reference, you may remember that Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus' feet will that day touch the Mount of Olives, and it parts in two. Half goes one way, half goes the other way. And apparently, in that spot, purified by the feet of Jesus, the holy city comes down to. And then the second resurrection takes place. Wicked, resurrected. And they go up with the devil and surround the city. At the end of the thousand years, Satan with the wicked, they go up and they surround the city. Revelation 20 tells us, and they think they can conquer it. Then the fire comes down from God out of heaven and destroys the wicked. Earth is purified by fire. By the way, where does hellfire come from? The Bible tells us, Revelation 20, comes down from God out of heaven. People say, well, we don't know where hell is, but it's down there somewhere. I say, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say hellfire's down there. The Bible says hellfire's coming from up there. Comes down from God out of heaven and the earth is going to be purified from every trace of sin and sinners, including the atmosphere, <laughs> the atmospheric heavens. And then God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Here's a diagram to put, sort of put it all together. This is end time events. We have the seven last plagues that takes place just before Christ returns. Then the second coming of Christ, the second advent. All the righteous taken to heaven, all the wicked are dead. For a thousand years the earth is desolate. And this is where, of course, the devil is going to be bound here in the desolate earth. At the end of the thousand years, the holy city descends. Second resurrection takes place. That's the wicked. They are destroyed in hellfire, punished in hellfire. After that, God makes a new heavens and a new earth. And that will be the eternal home of the saved. Where are we on this timeline we are right about there. <laughs> just before, we know we're very close to the end, just before the seven last plagues. But let's consider what it's going to be like in heaven and the new earth. This is going to be a word picture from the Bible of what it's like. Our first text describing this is Isaiah 33, 24. Mark these in your notes tonight. Isaiah 33, 24 says, And the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. 
The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Did you ever say, I am sick? Some of you have been sick just in the last few weeks as we've been having this seminar. I know some of you have been able, you had to miss a meeting because you were sick. You'll never say, I'm sick there in heaven and the new earth. There'll be no sickness there. No headaches. No heartaches. No stomach aches. No back aches. No toe aches. Or any of those other aches and pains. There'll be no hypertension, no hypotension, none of those other tensions. No diabetes. No cancer. No heart disease. No disease, period. Fact is, there won't be any handicaps there. Let's go back to Isaiah 35 and notice this. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Open your Bible. Let's read this from the Bible. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. There will be no handicaps in heaven and the new earth. We'll read it here. Isaiah 35, verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, that's as a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. There'll be no handicaps there, no lame people. Every lame person is going to be healed. I remember one time we were doing a seminar and we had a helper who had no legs. He was coming every night, come wheeling in in his wheelchair and was helping with registration. By the way, I should just mention tonight... A big thank you to our helpers. We've had a great team here helping out with these meetings, and I do appreciate all those that have been helping. But anyway, this particular meeting, we had this fellow. He would come in. He was a young man in his 20s. He'd come wheeling in in his wheelchair. Whenever he got down out of his wheelchair, he was very short because he had no legs. What had happened, before he became a Christian, he was involved with drugs. And one day he was walking home, and the path he was walking on crossed the railroad tracks. And he was high, way high on drugs. And as he crossed the railroad tracks, he tripped and fell and went into a drug-induced coma. When the train came by, rolled right over him, took off both of his legs just below his torso. It's a miracle that he survived from that terrible accident. He told me later, he says, when he was in the hospital convalescing, recovering, three Seventh-day Adventist young men came to visit him. They said, we have, God has sent us to visit you. <laughs> And they began sharing with him about Jesus. And he, of course, accepted Christ. He became a Seventh-day Adventist. And so he was there helping out in the seminar, helping with registration. And we would have a good time talking, he and I. And I'd say, brother, someday when Jesus comes back, you're going to get a new body. And we, when we get to heaven, you and I, we're going to go for a race. And you're going to win. I had a good time talking about what it will be like when he was no longer laid. We'll get new bodies. And the Bible says the, the tongue of the dumb shall sing. We've sometimes had deaf and mute people attending our seminars. I remember one time we were doing meetings in, in Ukraine. We had a large group of deaf and mute people up in one section of the, near the front. And there was a person that was translating the message to them in sign language, signing to them. And there were several of them that were baptized at the end of the seminar. Deaf and mute. There'll be no deaf and mute people there. They're going to be able to sing and able to hear. And the Bible tells us the eyes of the blind shall be opened. We have sometimes had blind people coming to our lectures. My sister, the last eight years of her life, she was blind. And I remember when we would go back and visit my family, we'd visit my, my, my parents when my sister was still alive, and my mother, she would try to make life more interesting for my blind sister. So when we would go to the park or somewhere, she would try to describe the things that we were seeing, the sights, to my blind sister. Let me ask you, do you think that the scenes that my mother were describing to my blind sister, do you suppose they were more real than she could imagine, not being able to see them? 
you think? Well, suppose you were blind. Suppose I were to come to you one evening and say, well, you know, I'm going to describe to you every person that's coming to these lectures. I'll, I'll describe their form and everything and what they look like, and I'll describe to you the building. And the... It'd take me a long time. When I got all done, would you have a clear picture of, of everyone and everything? Of course not. What do they say? A picture is worth a, a thousand words? There is no way that you can describe in words what sight opens up to us. Don't miss this. Tonight we're only getting a word picture of something we have not yet seen, but it's all true, every bit, and the half has not been told. There we're going to find the fountain of youth, the river of life. Let's go read it from Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 1. There in heaven and the new earth we will find this river of life. Revelation 22, verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Pure water, crystal clear. There'll be no pesticides in that water. No fungicides or herbicides or insecticides or any of those other sides. There'll be no heavy metals in that water. We'll be able to drink right out of the water, out of the river of life. Would you drink out of any rivers here in Missouri? No. <laughs> I, I, we used to live in Montana, our family. I don't know that I'd want to even drink out of the waters in Montana, some rivers in Montana. You never know what died upstream. <laughs> but there, we're going to drink the water right out of the river, and it's going to be life-giving water. Makes you thirsty just thinking about it, doesn't it? And there we're going to find the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits. Let's read about it from, chapter, from verse 2. Revelation 22 verse 2 says, In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, apparently there's got one trunk that comes up on one side of the river, and one trunk that comes up on the other side of the river, and it meets in the top together into one tree, apparently. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You say, Pastor, why would the nations of the saved need to be healed? Well, you come back, we'll come back to that in, in a little while. But notice we have this tree that has 12 manners of fruits, yields her fruit every month. A different flavor each month. What's it taste like? I don't know, but I want to go flavor every one of those 12 flavors, don't you? got to be better than mangoes or bananas or whatever your favorite fruit is. And a different fruit, a different flavor each month. Twelve different flavors, apparently. I remember one time I was doing meetings in, near, in the Phoenix City area, down in Arizona. And I went to visit this fella, and he took me to the out back behind his house, and he had one tree, citrus tree. And on that one tree, he was growing lemons and oranges and grapefruits all on one tree. I thought, this is amazing. Well, certainly if we can do that here, God has the ability to grow 12 different flavors all on the same tree. And this is life-giving fruit. This is the tree of life. When you eat from that fruit, that, that tree, it imparts life. The tree of life. We'll come back and find out what those leaves are all about that are for the healing of the nations. There in heaven and the new earth, we're going to find peace. We're going to find tranquility. We're going to find freedom from fear. There'll be no violence there. The Bible tells us, Isaiah 60, verse 18, Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates praise. 
There'll be no violence there. We live in a violent world, don't we? Every time you turn on the news, what do we see? Violence. That's what Hollywood feeds us anymore, it's violence. There'll be no violence in, the hev in heaven and the new earth. There'll be no suicide bombers there. There'll be no suicide pilots there. No terrorists in the new Jerusalem. There'll be no violent storms there to sweep away our possessions and leave us brokenhearted and empty-handed. In fact, there won't even be any violent animals there. Will there be animals in heaven? Oh, yes. Come with me to Isaiah 11. Let's read this. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. I've sometimes had children ask me, Pastor, can I take my doggie with me to heaven? Or my kitty with me to heaven? And I say, well... Jesus didn't come and die to save the doggies and the kitties. We recognize that even our best pets are affected by sin. And if you don't think that's true, you get your saintly St. Bernard together with another St. Bernard over a bowl of dog food, and you find out you don't have two saints at all. You have doggy warfare. So our animals, even our best pets, are affected by sin. But if you have some special pet here, no doubt God's going to have some equivalent there Something to take its place, or maybe something even better there. But there will be animals in heaven and the new earth. Let's read that here from Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. Verse 6 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. What a beautiful picture. Here we have this little child, and for a pet, they have a wolf, a lamb, a leopard, a kid, a calf, a young lion, and a fatling. What's a fatling? Well, I don't know. Might be a big teddy bear, or a live teddy bear, or an elephant or something. Doesn't tell us what it is, but talk about Do you like pets? You can have a whole zoo full of pets up there, and you won't have to have them behind bars because none of them will be wild. They'll all be domesticated, tame, or whatever you call it. Verse 7 says, And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, or in other words, grass like the cow. Verse 8, And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. Those are de deadly snakes. Of course, they won't be deadly up there. Verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We'll be able to enjoy animals. Can you imagine what it'd be like to pet the grizzly bear? Not feel any fear. Or the lion. We had mountain lions when we were in Montana. They'd come right up in our lawn. And I was always kind of, well, I don't know if you'd say fearful, but oh, I didn't feel too confident around those creatures. But there we'll be able to pet the mountain lion. Can you imagine having a, a hummingbird come and land on your earlobe and warble to you? Or call the bird and have it come and land on your finger and sing to you. Or have the squirrel come and jump up in your lap. There'll be no animals will not be afraid of us there. If you love animals, you will love heaven and the new earth. What a beautiful picture. And the Bible tells us the lion's going to eat what? Straw. Straw like the ox or grass like the cow. I remember one time I was doing a seminar in the former Soviet Union in an atheistic city, and I had a man, I, preached, I was preaching one night, and I mentioned in the sermon that there would be no death in heaven, and I had this man come to me after the sermon. I think he was the prof professor from the local university. He said, Pastor, will there be lions in heaven? I said, yes, the Bible says so. He said, but you said there'd be no death there. 
So if there's no death in heaven, what's the lion going to eat? I said, the Bible says he's going to eat straw like the ox or grass like the cow. He says, you believe that? I said, of course the Bible says that. I believe it, don't you? He said, no, I don't believe that. <laughs> well, do you believe it? Yes. If you don't believe it, you're not going to see it. There'll be no unbelievers in heaven. I'm looking forward to, those, to, to watching those lions out grazing in the pasture with the cattle. Oh, I don't know what else will be up, out there. Evidently, don't miss this, evidently heaven's lions are vegetarian lions. I don't know if you heard the story of, the little, of little Tyke, the vegetarian lioness. This was back, I think, in the 50s. They wrote a whole book about her. This is a photograph of little Tyke turning away her head from meat and wincing. She never ate meat her entire life. Sometimes they would take a bowl of milk, they would put two drops of blood in it, she wouldn't touch it. She was a vegetarian all of her life, grew to be a full-grown, completely normal lioness. She was vegetarian. Here's another photograph of little Tyke with one of her favorite friends, Becky the Lamb. I'm going to give you tonight in your handout, a, a, a copied handout about little Tyke. She, she died some years ago. This was back in the 50s. But can you imagine, even here in this sin-cursed world, we had a vegetarian lioness. All the lions up there are going to be vegetarian. <laughs> we'll be able to enjoy the animals there. Let's go read that verse about no death in heaven. Come with me to Revelation 21, verse 4. This is the text that I read that the, caused the professor, that particular city, to ask me, what about the lions? What are they going to eat if there's no death? This was the text. Revelation 22, verse 4 says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. There'll be no starving children there. There'll be no funerals there. We have a funeral that's scheduled right here on Tuesday morning. Someone, one of our, one of our group, one of our church members, dear church member, died Sabbath, went to his rest because of cancer. Two weeks ago, this, two weeks ago today, I preached the sermon at my mother's funeral. There'll be no funerals there, no death there for all eternity. Those that are the, the righteous that live there will never have to fear death, never feel the sting of death. Fact is, we won't even grow old. Amen. Anybody growing old? No, I don't, you won't, we don't want to admit that, do we? <laughs> you know, old, I realize that old is getting older. Well, I think, well, 60, that's not old. People that are 70, they say, well, that's, or people that are 90, they say, well, 80 is not old. I visited a man that was going to be 93 next year. And I was talking about my dad being 81. He said, oh, he's just a kid. <laughs> we'll never get old there. But we're going to have real bodies. In fact, the Bible tells us that. Mark down this text. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. It says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're expecting Him to come from heaven. When He comes, what does He do? Philippians 3, 21 says, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself? He's going to change our vile body and fashion it like his glorious body. Does Christ have a real body? 
Oh yes, you can read that in Luke 24. He went back to heaven with a glorified flesh and bones. And when he, gonna come, when he comes back, he's going to change this vile body with his wrinkles. Amen. He's going to change this vile body with its gray hair. Or no hair. <laughs> or no hair. Amen. I got a few gray hairs. He's going to change this vile body with, it, with its aches and pains. Amen. You haven't fallen asleep yet, have you? I'm looking forward to getting a new... Are, are, would you like a new body? If you're 50, over 50, you want a new body, right? I haven't got to 50 yet, and I'm already looking forward to a new body. Mark this, when we get to heaven, we're going to have real bodies. Heaven's no place where, the, you know, you go in soul form or spirit form. People, you know, this whole idea that when you die, you go straight to heaven or straight to hell in some sort of disembodied form. How could you enjoy heaven if you were disembodied? I mean, you couldn't take a bite out of the piece of, uh, out, of, out, of the, out of the fruit from the tree of life. You had no teeth to bite it with. No stomach to swallow it too. If you're some, can you imagine what heaven, I've often thought about heaven. If you're just sort of floating along as a disembodied thing. How could you enjoy heaven? I mean, imagine I'm up there. I'm this disembodied body or whatever. I'm this spirit wisp. And I'm floating along in heaven. And I sense another spirit passing, a familiar spirit. I say, oh, peep, peep, is that you, dear? Spirit peeps back. Yes, it's me. You think? Heaven's no place for ghosts and goblins. Heaven will be a real place for real people. We're going to have real bodies there. And yet, in spite of the fact that we have new bodies, we're going to recognize each other, right? People say, well, pastor, if we have new bodies, are we going to recognize each other when we get to heaven? Yes. Let's prove that. Put in your notes 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. You'll know me, I'll know you, but we will have new bodies. We're going to recognize each other. Every feature is going to be beautified and ennobled. And yet we're going to discern this is my friend or this is my family member. Can you imagine what it'll be like in the resurrection when the dead rise? And you see grandma coming up out of the tomb and you look... Look at Grandma. Why, she doesn't look like Grandma anymore. She looks like a, a young lady. She could win the beauty pageant. When my mother died, she wasn't a beautiful woman when she died. She was an old lady. I hate to say that. She was an elderly woman. She looked quite old. 84. You saw the pictures of her when she was young. She was a beautiful young woman. She's gonna, when she comes up out of the grave, she's going to look far more beautiful than she did when she was 20 years old. Sometimes you ladies, you know, you look at the magazine, she say, oh, if only I looked as beautiful as that model, that supermodel. I remember I had a lady tell me one time, she said, Pastor, I was looking in the mirror the other day, and she said, I used to be a beautiful woman, but she said, I, I looked in the mirror, and I said, what's happened to you? You've become an ugly old lady. I thought to myself, you're saying it, not me. I wouldn't dare call her an ugly old lady. She was calling herself an ugly old lady. There'll be no ugly old ladies in heaven. Every ugly old lady is going to be beautified and ennobled. 
could win the beauty pageant if possible. And I can imagine maybe you look over in the graveyard somewhere and you see Grandpa coming up. He doesn't look like Grandpa anymore. He looks like a young man. He's got hair again. And it's not white hair, it's black hair. We're going to recognize each other even though we have new bodies. We're going to know as we are known, the Bible says. Now, sometimes people, people wonder, what about children? Will children be in heaven? Oh, yes. Now, I should clarify, babies will not be born in heaven. The Bible makes it very clear that babies won't be born in heaven, but there will be babies in heaven, babies that were born here who died. If you like a text, a couple texts, cross-references, mark in your notes Matthew 2, 16 through 18. That's the story of the babies in Bethlehem where Herod sent the soldiers and killed all the babies in Bethlehem. And then the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17 predicted that those babies would be re resurrected. They will, of course, grow up in heaven. I tell people who have lost a baby in death, in the resurrection, that baby is going to be restored to you and you will have the opportunity to raise that child in heaven. What a glorious opportunity. We're going to grow up there. The children are going to grow up. In fact, the fact is, we, we adults are going to grow up there. Did you know that? I want to text Mark down Malachi 4, verse 2. Where is it? There, it's supposed to, there it is. Malachi 4, verse 2. The Bible tells us we're going to come forth. We're going to go forth and grow up like calves coming out of a stall in the springtime. We're going to grow rapidly. I always wanted to grow tall. And as you can see, I didn't accomplish that too well. <laughs> My mother was only five foot. My dad was six foot, and I kind of got halfway in between. I'm looking forward to growing again. I've often thought what it would be like to get to heaven and meet Adam. You know, the race has been deteriorating in size. They've dug up bones of people who lived before the flood. And calculating their size, they were, some of them were 12 foot tall, 14 foot tall, 16 foot tall, fully proportioned. So I can imagine meeting Adam. Probably, well, just to visualize it, let's imagine that this guy here is Adam, probably 16 foot tall. And this guy over here, this little fella, is Lowell, not even six foot tall. And I can imagine meeting Adam in heaven. I was this great big man. I say, oh, hello, you must be Adam. And he looks down at me and says, well, who are you, little fella? You must have come from one of those last generations living on planet Earth. You're so short. Come with me, my little brother. And so we go for a walk, big tall Adam and little me. And we walk over to the tree of life. Adam, he's so tall, he reaches up, he picks off some of those fruits and some of those leaves, which are for the healing of the nations. And I'm going to eat those fruits, I'm going to eat those leaves, and I'm going to be healed of my shortitis. I'm going to start to grow again. I'm not, this is, no, we're not fantasizing here. This is reality. The Bible tells us we're going to reach the measure of the stature that God intended for us. I'm not going to stay short all eternity. Praise God. I'm going to grow up, catch up to Adam one day. We'll all reach the ideal that God intended for the human race. What are we going to do there in heaven and the new earth? Well, we're not going to sit on a cloud and play a harp for all eternity. I have nothing against harps. I want to learn how to play a harp and a trumpet, whatever else they have up there for instruments. But I can think of other things that I want to do when I get to heaven. Can you imagine what it will be like to travel? The Bible tells us the saints will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You like to travel? Yeah. I know some of you hate traveling. <laughs> My wife and I, we travel so much. Traveling is a burden. We do it because we're involved in ministry. 
But there, traveling's not going to be tiring. We're not going to take all the baggage and all the suitcases and pay the airline for each extra suitcase you take. You won't have to take any suitcases. And I can imagine what it's going to be like to travel out through the universe. They haven't yet found the edge of the universe. Did you know that? Every time they make a bigger telescope, they find there's more galaxies out there. I can see the saints as they wing their tireless flights to worlds afar, traveling, exploring the wonders of the universe. We will never get tired of heaven. Our highest ambitions can be realized. Our greatest goals can be reached. And there will always be new heights to surmount, new wonders to explore. Heaven will be endless adventure. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart, that's the mind, of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, the Bible does tell us some of the things we're going to do when we get to heaven and the new earth. Come with me to Isaiah 65. You're going to like this. Isaiah 65, we're going to read verses 21 and 22. Isaiah 65, verses 21 and 22. This is one of the things we're going to do when we get to the new earth, at least. The Bible says, And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There we're going to get to build houses, plant gardens. Can you imagine what it will be like to garden in the new earth? The strawberries are going to be as big as pears. And the grapes will be as big as oranges, perhaps. And tastes better than anything you ever tasted here. Take a look at this. Doesn't it look good? Can you imagine growing kiwis in your backyard in the new earth? And the nice thing about gardening in the new earth, we won't have to pull weeds. And we won't have to deal with the bugs, the pests. I remember when I was growing up on the family farm back in Ohio, my daddy, he had two big potato patches. We had potato beetles. You have potato beetles in Missouri? I see some of you nodding your heads. Well, my daddy, he assigned me to pick potato beetles. He'd give me a little can and put some gasoline in the bottom of the can, and I had to go out in the potato patch, and I'd pick the beetles and drop them in the can or the larvae, and I had to squash the eggs underneath the leaves. And I didn't like the job. Well, when I went to Ukraine some years ago, we were, went over there and did ministry, I learned that the Russians, the Ukrainians, they called the, the potato beetle the Colorado beetle. Of all things. And at that time, we, my wife and I, we were living in Colorado. And so every night after the meeting, you know, we'd, people would meet me at the door and they always wanted to talk to the American. And somebody would always ask me, Pastor Lowell, what state do you come from in America? And I would say, I come from Colorado. And you could see their eyes light up. They said, oh, that's where those beetles come from. <laughs> and then they would really get interested. Oh, you're from Colorado. What do you do for Colorado beetles? You're from Colorado. You have, must have the latest formula. What do you do for Colorado beetles? I'd say, listen up. And you could, you know, their ears, whew, it's like the deer, you know. They'd crowd in. They wanted to get the latest formula. I said, this is what I do. I take a can. I put some gas in the can or some diesel in the can. And I go out to my potato patch and I pick the beetles and I put them in the can. And you can see all the enthusiasm just draining out of their faces. And they say, that's how you deal with Colorado beetles? We thought you in America were more sophisticated than that. That's what we do here. <laughs> so that's what I do. No Colorado beetles in the New Earth. Or potato beetles, unless they're converted potato beetles. 
We're going to enjoy gardening there. It won't be work. It's going to be pleasure. And the Bible tells us we're going to build houses, not the way we build them here. We won't need a roof to keep out the rain because the earth, no doubt, was going to be watered by a dew like it was in the beginning. We won't need windows to keep out the weather or walls because the weather is going to be perfect. We won't need a door to keep out the thieves. So I can imagine we'll build with some of the more natural things. I, I'm already planning my country home in the new earth. I want to have a home up in the mountains. Not these rugged, rocky mountains, but these beautiful, rolling mountains. God knows I love the mountains. And I have a mountain stream flowing right down through my living room. And I want to have a picture window view, as it were, of the new Jerusalem way off in the distance. And for my back wall, I'm planning to have an aspen grove. And for a side wall, I'm going to have a banana grove. Can you imagine growing bananas and aspens together? You can in the new earth. I haven't decided the other wall yet. Maybe some azaleas. I want to have some of my favorite flowers planted there, the Colorado Columbine. I'm planning to have animals there, probably a tiger or maybe a panda bear, other animals. My country home, I want to have some birds there, some parrots, some, maybe a, a, a peacock to welcome me whenever I come home. It's all true, every bit. You ought to be planning your country home. Did you know we're going to have two homes in the new earth? We're going to have the city home. That's the one that Jesus designs, builds for us. John 14, 1 through 3, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. That's the one he builds for you. That's in the holy city. And then we're going to build a country home. They shall build houses and inhabit them. Can you imagine we'll have two homes in the new earth? Some of you don't even own one home. Here, I don't. I'm a renter. <laughs> but there we're going to have two homes and you won't have to have a mortgage on either one. They're going to be paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Now there's a practical reason why we have two homes in the new earth. Let's go to, to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, we're going to read verse 22 and 23. Let's just cross the page from Isaiah 65. Isaiah 66, 22 and 3 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, that's from month to month, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. So from wherever we may have been in the new earth or over us traveling out in the universe, every Sabbath we're going to come back together to the new Jerusalem to worship before God. And when we come into the new Jerusalem, we're not going to have to feel like we have to check into a hotel because we're going to have our own mansion there. When we come, when we come in, whenever we come into the new Jerusalem, we'll have a mansion there. And I would just, let me just mention this tonight, an invitation to each of you. You're all welcome to come visit me in my mansion in the New Jerusalem, any given Sabbath after the worship service. Please come. And during the week, if, uh, you're welcome to come visit me in my country home up in the mountains also. And if I'm not there, then help yourself to the strawberries and the kiwis and the mangoes. It's all true every bit and the half has not been told. What's going to keep most people out of heaven? What will keep most people out of paradise? Here's the answer. Revelation 21 verse 8. Whoop, let me back up. Revelation 21, verse 8. You're, we've been studying Revelation 21 tonight. Notice verse 8. Here we have God's list of the lost. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But the fearful and unbelievers, unbelieving, 
and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers. By the way, that word whoremonger comes from the Greek word pornos, where we get our English word pornography, pornographers and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Notice, liars is the only one that says all. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All liars. Who's a liar? Here's what the Bible says. 1 John 2, 3 and 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a what? Is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Evidently, there's a lot of people that profess to be Christians that the Bible identifies as liars. They don't keep the commandments or they don't keep all of them. The Bible tells us, Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. You can't earn salvation, but if you're not willing to obey God, you're not going to be saved either. We show our love for Jesus by obeying him. If you love me, he said, keep my commandments. But I want you to notice the first two qualities listed here on the list of the lost. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, but the fearful and unbelieving, fear and unbelief are going to keep most people out of heaven. What kept most people out of the ark in Noah's day? Fear and unbelief. They didn't believe there'd be a flood. People tell me, I, all the time I have people say, oh pastor, I don't believe. That picture of heaven seems too unrealistic. Well, it does seem far-fetched, but it's going to be a million times better than we can imagine. It's all true every bit. Back in Noah's day, no doubt there were people, some people that believed Noah's message, but they were afraid to go in the ark, not afraid of the storm. They were afraid of what their family might say about them. Or they were afraid of losing their job. Or they were afraid of what their friends would think of them if they went in the ark. Is it any different today? Would you have gone in the ark if you'd been in Noah's day? <laughs> if you had gone in the ark in Noah's day, you would have had to leave your home. You would have had to leave your job. You had to leave your family. You had to leave your friends. You had to leave your church. You had to essentially leave everything to go in the ark. Can you see why so few people went in the ark? And not only that, you, that wasn't all. Your friends, your family would have thought, what about you? They would have thought you had lost your mind. Would you have gone in the ark? <laughs> you see why, why so few people went in? You would have gone in the ark if today you were willing to give up any of those things or all those things to follow Jesus. Then you probably would have been one of those that went in the ark back in Noah's day. But there are multitudes today that are for the same reasons back in Noah's day as today. They're afraid to follow the truth. They're afraid of what somebody's going to say about them. Or they're afraid of their job, or they're afraid of their family. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It'll be the same way at end time. People are afraid to obey God for fear of what somebody's going to think of them. Don't be afraid to obey God. I think we ought to pray the prayer of the man that came to Jesus one day. Mark 9, verse 24, he said, Lord, I believe, help thou my my unbelief. Lord, I believe a little bit. Help mine unbelief. Will the Lord hear that prayer? Amen. Oh, yes, you can pray that prayer. It's all true every bit, and the half has not been told. How can we be assured that we're going to be there and among the saved? Here's the answer. John 3, 16. Let's read it together. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice that word, whosoever. That includes you. And I might mention something else here. To believe in God includes obeying God. God associates disobedience with unbelief. If you want the text for that, Numbers 20, verses 11, 12, and 24. God associates disobedience with unbelief. The Bible tells us the devils believe and tremble. Will the devils be saved? No. So it means more that to believe in Jesus means more than just say, oh, I believe in Jesus. It means to obey him. And if you love me, keep my commandments. You can be in that group, though. There's going to be people saved from every country. Let's read about it from Revelation 7, verse 9. I want you to imagine yourself in this group. Revelation 7, verse 9 says, Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. There's going to be people there from every country, from every state, from every city, probably, including, what city? Clinton? A what? Roscoe? Warsaw or Hoseala or Deepwater or whatever city you're from, will you be there? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Jesus wants us to be there. He has paid the highest price, the ultimate price, that we might be saved. If we're lost, whose fault will it be? It'll be our own fault. He's paid the ransom price for you. The Bible tells us, I hath, let's read it together. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. The best part of heaven is going to be meeting Jesus. Amen? Amen? Come with me in your imagination. Let's imagine that Jesus has come back. We've seen him coming in the clouds of glory. We feel the power of gravity lose its grip upon us. We're drawn upward with the saints of all ages. We see the dead resurrected. We're caught up with all the saints to meet the Lord where? To meet the Lord in the air. We're taken up past the planets, past the galaxies, galaxies to the new Jerusalem. And I can imagine outside that holy city, Jesus lines us up in these, this enormous hollow square. And he goes around with his own hands and places on each head the victor's crown. And then with his own hands, he opens wide those pearly gates. He says, welcome home, children. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And I can imagine as we step inside the new Jerusalem, our first thought is going to be something like this. Wow. Jesus left this beautiful place and went down to that dark world to save me. We are not going to understand the sacrifice that Jesus made until we see heaven and see what he left to save us. And then our second thought is going to be something like this, no doubt. Heaven is cheap at any price. Whatever we may have had to give up, whatever we may have had to renounce, whatever bad habit we have to leave behind, it's going to seem so insignificant, so small when we get to gl the glories of heaven. And then we're going to begin to examine the holy city. I mean, it's as big as the state of Colorado. We could spend a thousand years just touring the city, right? 
And I can imagine the rapture of meeting people that you've read about, people like Moses and Daniel and John, the, the apostles, the saints of all ages. It doesn't seem like we could be happier. And I can imagine maybe after a few days, we've been there in the New Jerusalem, perhaps one day an angel comes to your side and he says, the master wants to see you again. And your heart thrills to meet the master. You have not been this close to Jesus since the day he put the crown on your head. And so you travel with that angel, perhaps at the speed of thought, to where the master Jesus is. And you take off your crown, you kneel at Jesus' feet to worship. And I can imagine Jesus with his own nail-scarred hands. He picks you up and he embraces you. You could spend an eternity in that embrace, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast. And then I can imagine Jesus says something like this to you. My child, I want to show you some of the significant sights here in the New Jerusalem. And you with Jesus, arm in arm, you go on the tour. This is the royal tour of the New Jerusalem. Maybe he takes you over to the river of life, gives you a drink. He said, here, my child, this is life giving. Drink. You drink that water. Maybe he takes you to the tree of life. He picks off some of those fruits. He says, eat these. These are life-giving. And then I can just imagine that Jesus, he says, my child, I have something I want to show you. And he takes you to an area of the New Jerusalem that's filled with these, with these fabulous mansions. You've never seen buildings like this anywhere in your life. These mansions are so beautiful, it makes the Taj Mahal look like a doghouse. You'd never imagine that a building could be so beautiful. I can imagine everyone is unique. Each one is different. And the landscaping around the mansions is itself a marvel. It's like a botanical garden around each mansion. And as you're walking down the Golden Street admiring these beautiful mansions set back, each one of them back there in their botanical garden, I can imagine Jesus points out specific ones. He says, oh, uh, Daniel, he lives in that one. And you go a little farther and he says, oh, Paul, he lives over in that mansion. Maybe you go around a corner and turn down another street. and He points out another mansion. He says, oh, Martha, she lives in that man mansion. And as you go down another street, he says, oh, Martin Luther, he lives over in that mansion. And perhaps as you're going down another street, I mean, you can feel like I could spend an eternity just touring with Jesus. This is, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. And I can imagine as you're walking along, suddenly you spot up ahead of you a mansion that really speaks to your soul. You think of, of all the mansions I've seen today, I think I like that one the best of all. I wonder who lives in that mansion. And I can just imagine as you arrive at the long, winding, golden walkway leading up to that mansion, Jesus stops. He raises his right arm, he points to that mansion, he says, my child, that one's yours. I was thinking of you every moment I designed. I designed that one just for you. I knew you would like that one. And when the reality bursts upon you that this is your mansion, your home designed for you, again you fall at Jesus' feet to worship. He picks you up. He says, well, let's go inside. And you walk up that long, winding walkway. You see some of your favorite vegetation, some of your favorite flowers planted there. The landscaping is just as you would have done it if you had been there with Jesus. Your personality blended with divine creativity. And there as you arrive at the entrance to the mansion, you see your new name there over the door, beside the door somewhere, your new name identifying this, this is your home, your mansion. 
and you step inside with Jesus. And if it were possible, the inside is just as beautiful as the outside. Everything is laid out just the way you would have been if you had been there with Jesus. Jesus, the divine architect, and you giving your personality. You can see it all there just the way you would have wanted it if you'd been there. You go from room to room. And then I can imagine Jesus, he takes you into the dining room. And there you can see a golden table spread with some of your favorite fruits. And around the table are some of your closest family, some of your dearest friends. And there your guardian angel is there. And there, I can just imagine there are two seats at the head of the table. And Jesus, he pulls out one seat. He seats you. And then he pulls out the other seats. See, he sits down beside you and he takes your hands in his nail-scarred hands, and he says, My child, all this I have done to make you happy. Is there anything more I can do for you to make you happy? And you fall on Jesus' bosom, and you say, Master, I'll serve you forever and forever and forever. Will you be there? Will you be there to have Jesus take you to the mansion that he has prepared just for you? If you miss heaven, you have missed everything worth living for. If you gain heaven, nothing else in this life matters. I want to be there, don't you? I want Jesus to take me to the mansion that he has created, he has prepared just for me. And I want you to be there. I want to walk those golden streets with you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.